You are listening to the Biz Rock Podcast with Dr. Vince Bantu and sponsored by the Jude 3 Project. We are so thankful for those who support the mission and vision of the Jude 3 Project to help us produce content such as the Biz Rock Podcast. If you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you could do so by going to jude3project.org and hitting that donate tab. You can either give by mail or give online. Thank you so much to our supporters. We appreciate you and we hope you enjoy today's episode. And Shanuta claims that there was thousands of Nubians, Blemies and uh, Nobodians who had taken shelter in his monastery and many of them actually got saved. So this is the first recorded mass conversion of black African people in church history was in the fifth century. And it was through an African connection between Egyptian monks and Nubian refugees. Well, hello, everybody. What's good? My name is Vince Bantu, and welcome to the Bisrot Podcast. Uh, the Bisrot Podcast is one of the several ministries of the Jude 3 Project, where our mission is to equip the church to know what we believe and why. And the Bisrot Podcast in particular looks at different topics relative to early African Christianity. We know that one of the biggest issues in the black church and black community, especially when it comes to apologetics, evangelism, and sharing our faith, is questions about black people's identity, ancestry, and history, and Christianity's role in that. Uh, and so we uh, know that it's very important for us to understand ancient African history and to be able to understand the role that the church has played in ancient African Christianity from day one, from the get-go, because we know one of the biggest uh, obstacles to sharing the gospel uh, or the bisrot in the black community and really in the world is the idea that Christianity is a white man's religion or is a Western religion at its core. And so we counter that with historical evidence uh, in addition to, and more importantly with the scriptures, with the word of God to show that the gospel, the bisrot, has been among African people from the very beginning. And so we are looking at that and addressing various topics, um, especially in uh, conversation with other leading scholars, addressing questions that are really very um, alive and, and central uh, to uh, doing apologetics in the black community. But also in some of these other more lecture style podcasts, what we've actually done is created a series of a few uh, different lectures to cover some of the broader reaching history so that uh, people in our community can have a broad sense of how the church grew uh, in ancient Africa. And we're focusing on ancient Africa because we know that there have been many uh, Christians in the last few centuries uh, that have come to know Christ and the church has grown. In fact, it's strongest in Africa right now. But we know that doing apologetics, many people in our community can sometimes, uh, uh, even though they shouldn't, can brush aside some of the things that have been happening uh, in the, in, well, in, on the continent, but also in the diaspora and how the church has grown in the midst of black communities around the world in the last few centuries. Uh, it can be written off because, and say, well, because it came through slavery or colonialism. And so that's another reason why we especially highlight the early and the ancient contributions of the church in Africa to the global church. And uh, even to, to underline the fact that the, the bisrot, the gospel has been among African people way before the slave trade ever even started. 
And so we uh, today we're going to be doing a survey of the early church in Nubia. And and if we as we continue on with this survey, uh, as we've noted before in some of these mini lectures, when we talk about the early church or when we talk about the African continent, uh, we're talking about four major areas in the early period, in the in the earliest centuries of Christianity, like the first millennium. We're primarily talking about four major kingdoms that are that are well attested in literary and material and archaeological evidence. And those four main areas are North Africa and um, which would be modern day Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya. And then we would talk about Egypt and, and then also Ethiopia, or as it was known in ancient times, Axum, and what we're talking about today, which is the region that has been called Nubia, as well as several other names. Now, as we've already pointed out several times, but we have to say this again, when you look at Africa, the, the continent we now call Africa, and you look at the known kingdoms in that continent in the ancient times, in the first millennium, and, you, and again, it's mainly those four areas that we've talked about, it's, it's very significant. It cannot be understated to point out that Christianity was not only present in all of those areas, but it was actually the dominant religion in all of those areas, not just one or two, but in all of those areas. Uh, that Christianity was not only present, but it was the dominant religion. In fact, in Ethiopia and Nubia, which were independent sub-Saharan African nations, Christianity was embraced as the national religion. These were Christian nations a, a thousand years before slavery ever even started in West Africa. And the other thing that cannot be understated is that not only was Christianity the dominant religion, but it was freely embraced. There was no imposition. There was nobody forcing Africans to be Christians. They freely heard the bisrot, the gospel, and believed upon it and became Christians and chose to embrace Christianity as their core faith uh, in all of these African societies. So you cannot study African history without studying Christianity. To study African Christianity, uh, African history is to study Christianity and vice versa because Africans have been an integral part of the global multicultural, multiracial body of Christ. Now, when we talk about Nubia in particular, um, Nubia had gone by several names and the capital had shifted, the center of power in Nubian history had shifted. And this is, this is a, an important civilization to know about because this is the oldest black civilization in the world. Some of the evidence that we've looked at in this podcast have already shown to you that there was a racial distinction between North Africans and Sub-Saharan Africans. Uh, and and uh, that's not to say that North Africans in Roman North Africa or Egypt were not, were not African. They most certainly were. Also, it bears uh, saying that they were not European, they were not white, they were not what we in the modern world or in the ancient world would have called white, but they also were not black in the way that we in the modern world or in the ancient world people would have considered. So when we get to, when we get past the first cataract of the Nile, we get into the kingdom of Nubia and that's when we get into sub-Saharan Africa or black Africa or the Sudan as it was known by a lot of the early Islamic historians who also noted the racial distinctions between uh, the brown-skinned North Africans and the black-skinned uh, Bantu or uh, sub 
sub-Saharan African people, and Nubia is the foundation of black Africa. Nubia is the oldest, again, even before Ethiopia or Axum, Nubia is the oldest black civilization in the world. Going back to Old Testament times, it was synonymous with blackness and with black people. Uh, and we see Nubians mentioned in the Bible. In fact, Nubians or Cushites are mentioned in the Bible more than any other nation except Israel. And so they're very prominent. We see many biblical characters mentioned. The Cushites come up quite a lot. Moses's Cushite wife, Ebed Melech, the Cushite uh, imperial official in Jerusalem that helped Jeremiah. Um, and so many uh, more Cushite characters. Now, before it was called Cush, it was called Kerma. And Kerma goes all the way back to the third millennium BC. So it's one of the oldest civilizations. And it was right next to Egypt. And there, from the very beginning, the, the Kermites were trading with and interacting with Egyptians from the beginning. Now, when you go into the first millennium, uh, the second and, and into the first millennium BC, that's when the, the region and the kingdom became known as Cush. And first, its major capital was in a city called Napata. And this was during the time of one of the most famous, probably the most famous king in Cushite history, who's mentioned in the word of God, and his name is Terhaka. And Terhaka is the king who's mentioned in the book of Kings, as well as Isaiah, who actually came to Hezekiah's rescue against the Assyrians. And archaeological evidence shows us as well that Terhaka was the most prominent king, uh, and he also was the king that expanded Cush outside of its territory in what we now call Sudan, and they actually conquered Egypt as well as parts of the Near East. And so this was at, uh, this is like the uh, 7th century BC, this is at the height of Cushite power. Now, after the time of Terhaka, the capital had moved to a city called Meroe. And when you come to the time of Christianity, that is the beginning of the Meroitic kingdom of Cush, where the kingdom of Cush was now centered in the city of Meroe. And in the city of Meroe, actually, you find the, one of the largest pyramid collections in the world. Nubia actually had more pyramids than Egypt did. And and, uh, and at the time of the Meroitic period in the New Testament time period, Nubia was often, uh, or Cush was often ruled by queens who were known as Kandake. And that should sound familiar because this, this shows us how Nubia is actually present in the word of God. And the beginning of the Nubian church is right at the beginning of the church global. In Acts chapter 8, we see mention of what's called an Ethiopian eunuch. Now we have to understand what Luke, the author of Acts, meant when he said Ethiopian. Ethiopian or Ethiopios in the Greek language literally just means a black person. It literally means burnt-faced one, one whose face is scorched by the sun. It's just a word for saying black person. So it was a racial term. It was not an ethnic or a national term. And you can see this being used all over Greek and Roman literature. Sometimes people, the, the Greek uh, writers would use it to refer to uh, people from India, like South, South Asia. They would refer to people from Arabia uh, or from actual Ethiopia from, or what was known then as Axum and people from Nubia. But again, this was a racial designation that indicated somebody was of dark skin. And it was not in a negative or pejorative way. Luke is just noticing that, this, that the brother was black. But he also says that he was a eunuch of Candace or Kandake, and that's what lets us know that he was from Nubia or from Cush. And right there you see a picture of actually what, who was likely the Kandake that this person, that this eunuch was worked under named Amanatore, who was one of the most prominent Kandake in the mid-first century. Uh, and, and so this is, this is likely uh, the Kandaki that this eunuch would have uh, been working for. And that's uh, some ruins of the palace at Meroe. And those are the steps, those are the areas that that eunuch would have been walking on. So you are looking at the remains of one of the oldest black 
African palaces in the world going all the way back to, you know, the, the fourth and fifth century BC. But even in the first century in Meroe, that's where that eunuch would have came who is now saved, baptized by the apostle Philip and now has brought the Bisrat, the gospel message into Nubia. And so that eunuch is the beginning of the Nubian church. Now, we can only guess at how much or to what degree Christianity continued to spread through people like that, that eunuch. It says he was a very important official, and that should definitely be uh, underscored that, I mean, he was multilingual. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. He was likely himself a Jew. There were many Jewish people in Egypt and even all the way along the border of Nubia and Egypt. So there was likely Jews in Nubia as well as there was in Ethiopia. Um, and so he likely himself, he was going to Pen he was going to Jerusalem to worship. And so uh, he was uh, a diplomat. He was in charge of the entire treasury. So it's not unlikely that Christianity continued to spread because of this very influential person's uh, having been, been saved and become a Christian. But we don't get any more evidence outside of the New Testament of Christians in Nubia until a couple more centuries later. In fact, uh, it was mainly through contact with Egyptian monks who we've already talked about Egypt and it's uh, the growth of Christianity there. But Christianity was blowing up all over Egypt, especially in the monastic communities. And many of these monks were missionaries. And that was actually some of the earliest contact or some of the earliest examples after the New Testament that we see Nubian Christians who become monks through connection with Egyptian monks. And the most famous example of such a person, his name was Moses the Black. Moses the Black was a Nubian monk. But he lived in Egypt. So he, he uh, had came uh, from Nubia and he was actually a thief. And then he, he uh, attempted to rob a monastery and then he actually felt remorse and got saved and joined the monastery. And he became one of the most revered monks in the history of Egyptian monasticism. And his relics are still housed in the Baromos Monastery in Egypt to this day. And he is featured, he's one of the most prominent monks mentioned in the Apothegma Patrum or the sayings of the desert fathers and mothers, which is a collection of Egyptian proverbs and teachings of the Egyptian monks, but Moses was one of the, um, the monks that's featured most prominently. And however, though, as I said earlier, the, the material uh, that even that, that primary text evidence from Egyptians and Nubians also demonstrates the racial distinctions that would have ha happened is the fact that he's called the black. And in fact, his blackness comes up and his dark skin comes up as a contrast to the Egyptians, which is again, uh, some evidence about what I was talking about earlier. Again, all of these people are African, but there is a racial distinction as there is today between North and Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, continuing though into the fifth century, this is when we start to get more uh, evidence of the gradual Christianization of Nubia. Now, we, we, we've covered in Egypt the most famous Egyptian writer in the history of the Egyptian language, which is Shenouda. Shenouda was an Egyptian monk who also actually was involved in uh, reaching and evangelizing Nubians in his southern Egyptian monastery. There was actually a tribe of, of people outside of Nubia that lived in sub-Saharan Africa called the Blemies. And the Blemies were a nomadic tribe that lived between the Nile of the, of, of the Sudan or of Nubia and the Red Sea. And they would often be uh, beefing with the Nubians who lived in the more urbanized civilizations along the Nile Valley. Now at this time, uh, Kush had declined, actually because of warfare with Ethiopia, but we'll get more to that when we talk about Ethiopian Christianity. So Kush had declined at this time, talking about the 400s, but what had happened was you started to have 
actually new kingdoms emerge along the Nile that were, that were initially separate kingdoms. And there were, the northern kingdom, Nobadia, were beefing and warring with the Blemies, and many of the victims of this warfare had actually fled into Egypt, and they found uh, safety and shelter in the monastery of Shenouda. And Shenouda claims that there was thousands of Nubians, Blemies and uh, Nobadians who had taken shelter in his monastery and many of them actually got saved. So this is the first recorded mass conversion of black African people in church history was in the fifth century. And it was through an African connection between Egyptian monks and Nubian refugees. And look at what Shenouda says he, when he is preaching to and he's celebrating the reality that these Nubians of their own free will, as a result of being empowered and taken care of by the Egyptian Christians, have decided to leave behind their idol worship and become Christians. He says, how blessed is the whole flock and all the flocks of Christ in that they follow after him, for they know him to be the God of truth. Would that these friends sitting here that belong unto the Blemies and the Nuba too would mingle with us and follow after him. That is, would know him to be God. For we have suffered them to mix with us and to come into God's house, that perchance they might come to reason. Can they then not know what the psalmist writes? The idols of the heathen are silver and gold. So again, this is, this is uh, showing that one of the most famous examples in the 400s about how more and more through communication with Egyptians that Nubians were becoming Christian. There's also indication around this same time period in the 5th century that that, that Christianity, or at least monotheism, was starting to make its way into the Nubian imperial court. There was, a, there was a famous example of a king named Silco, who was king in the fifth century, around the time of Shenouda's lifetime, and he was the king of, as he says here, Silco, the king of the Nobodies and all the Ethiopians, which again just means all the black people, because this, this imperial inscription of Silco was written in Greek, but it was in a Nubian temple. And notice why this, the reason why this is important is that this is one of the first indications of Nubian leaders starting to move into monotheism rather than polytheism, which was the practice, religious practice of Nubia for thousands of years up until this point in the 400s. But look what he says. He says that he uh, came to Nubian regions of Talmus and Tafnis and he fought with the Blemies. Again, that, that beef going on with that nomadic tribe. But then what, look what he says. He says, God gave me the victory over the Blemies. Now, for a Nubian king, to give praise to a monotheistic God was unheard of up until this point. Most of the time, like in Egypt, the Nubian kings would have saw themselves as manifestations of the gods. And they worshiped Egyptian gods like, like Horus and, and Ra and, uh, and Amun. But they also had Nubian gods like Apademach. And they, Nubian and Egyptian uh, religions influenced one another. But um, and so uh, so again, that that this is a side note, but that puts to bed any of these ridiculous claims from the comedic movement that wants to posit some kind of pure, unadulterated Egyptian religion. There is no pure, unadulterated Egyptian religion. Egyptian religion was always influenced by and influencing other religions like in Nubia. Um, and so uh, so all religions affect one another. And so um, that's a side note, though. But notice again how Silco gives thanks to God for his victory. Then he contrasts that with the Blemies, who it says that when he made peace with them, he made a treaty and they swore by their idols or their images. And I trusted their oath in the belief that they were honest people. And I withdrew to my upper region. So the there's a treaty that's made between Nubia and Blemies. But the significant part here is that the king Silco is contrasting the belief in the idols of the Blemies 
blemish with his belief in one God. And so many scholars have understood this to be an indication of perhaps a gradual conversion to and embracing of Christianity in Nubia. And as we've already seen, many Nubian citizens were already becoming Christians. So this shows us that contrary to some people's view, Christianity does not come into Africa in a top-down uh, direction where the king embraces it and then imposes it upon the African subjects. No, I've, we've already shown you evidence right now that even before the king of Nubia began to slowly uh, embrace at least the belief in one God, that there were already Nubians that were being baptized and were being catechized in Egyptian monasteries and that, that, that was already going on for a long time. Now, the official, though, kind of uh, official conversion of Nubia to becoming a Christian nation happened a century later in the 500s, in the 6th century. And we get more details about this story from a Syrian church historian named John of Ephesus. John of Ephesus wrote a whole history of the church. But at this time in the church, there was a major church schism. And I, you know, I go into this more in detail in The Multitude of All Peoples in my book, but I'll suffice it, I'll summarize it to say right now that in the year 451, there was a church council called the Council of Chalcedon. And in it, the Roman Empire and the Roman-backed uh, church had decided that the best way to talk about the humanity and divinity of Christ was to say that Jesus is one person, but he has two natures. Now, this theology did not make sense uh, because a lot of that rests upon one's understanding of the distinction between person and natures, which comes from a very Hellenistic or Roman cultural background. But in Egypt and in Syria, where John of Ephesus was from, they was not down with this theology. And they said, no, that sounds like you're saying there's two different Jesuses. There's one Jesus, so he has one nature. But the problem was is that you had a global church, but different people in different ideas, different regions had different ideas about how the best theology to talk about Jesus was. But because the European church had the empire behind them, they were able, they had the power and the money and the soldiers to impose their theology in North Africa and in the Middle East. Now, that, this bitter tension was going on for 100 years from 451 until the 500s when Nubia came onto the scene. Now, when the Nubian king had heard of Christianity, the emperor of Rome, Justinian, wanted to impose his particular theology called Chalcedonian theology in Nubia. But he, and, and he wanted to do that as a way of, of really kind of bringing Egypt into submission. Uh, if he can kind of gang up on Egypt and Syria, and if he can get a foreign nation that neighbors Roman Empire, Nubia, to be on his side of theology, then that can help to kind of bring the Egyptian and Syrian monks and priests who were resisting the Roman imperial theology in line. But look what happened. That did not happen. And in fact, Egyptian missionaries went to Nubia first and Nubia, when it became a Christian nation, not only did it embrace Christianity and reject paganism or idolatry, but it, it embraced the Egyptian version of Christianity and not the Roman one. Because again, the church was split at this time and they embraced what's called the Miaphysite theology of, that was big in Egypt and Syria and Arabia. And look what the king of Nubia says, even after receiving a uh, gifts from the Roman emperor Justinian, he says, and immediately while rejoicing, they offered their souls and they renounced in every way the error of their ancestors and believed in the God of the Christians. They're talking about the Nubians and the Nubian king saying, he is the one true God, and there is no other besides him. 
And then the king, so we see here that Nubians, again, freely embraced Christianity. They freely renounced uh, praying to Apodemoc and Horus and, and Amun. And they said, no, there is no other God except Jesus Christ. They were an independent African kingdom. Now, the Roman Empire was actually trying to bring them into their version of Christianity. And look what the African independent nation did. They said, we're going to be Christians, but we're going to be an African type of Christian, not a European type of Christian. We don't want the Chalcedonian faith. Look what, they, look what the text calls it. He says, the gift which the king of the Romans has sent us, we accept. And we will also send him a gift. But his faith, we will not accept. Notice how the Nubians call it his faith. They're talking about the European Christianity. They say, we don't want the European faith. He says, for if we agree to become Christians, we will follow Pope Theodosius, who, because he was not, and that's talking about the Egyptian Pope right there, because he was not willing to accept the, look what he says, the evil faith of the king. Talking about the Roman king. Justinian excommunicated Theodosius and cast him from his church. If, therefore, we abandon our heathenism and straying, we will not agree to fall into, again, he says, the evil faith. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that, you know, European Christianity is evil, but I think it's very interesting that a Nubian king in the 6th century, when it became a Christian nation, he said, and the Nubian people jointly said, that we will be Christians and we're rejecting our own idol worship, but we also are not going to be Christians in the European way. And he says it's evil faith. We don't want that evil faith. We want the African-Egyptian faith in line with Egypt. And that's why the Nubian church, for the rest of its entirety, was actually closely linked ecclesiastically and theologically with the church of Egypt. But again, I cannot stress the importance of this enough because we hear that the, 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 the sources are telling us the exact opposite of what a lot of the narrative and the myths and the conspiracy theories are in our community that Christianity was imposed upon us. And uh, and, and that and, and, you know, and that we were forced to embrace Christianity. But look, the oldest black nation in the world, Nubia, freely embraced Christianity in the sixth century. And not only that, but the European church, which had been oppressing the Egyptian church, attempted to impose their European version of Christianity in Nubia. And Nubia said, no, thank you. We are going to walk away from our, heath our heathenism, but we are not going to embrace European Christianity. We're going to embrace an African, uniquely African version of Christianity. And doesn't this ring true for black Christians even today? Aren't we often in the same position of being kind of stuck in some ways between our own people who are engaging in false teachings, false prophecies, false religions, uh, idol worship, polytheism, all other kinds of things that that glorify or or idolize blackness or ancestry on the one hand. But then on the other hand, we have Christians that say they're Christians, especially in the dominant European culture, but oftentimes are trying to impose their particular theology in our community. And we have to uplift and stand firm on the gospel, especially as it has been revealed in our own uniquely black church tradition. And so that's nothing new. That's been going on since, since the sixth century. But anyway, um, I'm not going to be before you long, so I'm going to continue on now and uh, make a few more comments about what happened after uh, throughout, you know, kind of some of the major uh, notches in Nubian Christianity after the official Christianization. So again, Nubia becomes a Christian nation in the sixth century. And again, actually, uh, that was, no, that was uh, the kingdom of Makuria, and, uh, but the kingdoms of Nobadi and Elodia quickly followed suit and became Christian as well, and they actually merged into one nation uh, probably around the 7th or 8th century, and that nation was called Dotawo, uh, D-O-T-A-W-O. But before that happened, right after the time that Nobadia and Makuria became Christian nations, you had another major uh, world event happen, and that was the rise of Islam. 
So Islam gets started in the seventh century, uh, or at least the Islamic conquest in the seventh century. And, and this is another thing that's interesting to point out. You know, we have a lot of people in our community that are saying that Islam is the real religion of black people and that we were all Muslims uh, and that Islam is religion of Africans and Christianity was imposed. Nah, bro, actually the opposite is true. And this is just historical records right here. And actually, they actually come from Muslim historians, not even from Christian. So even Muslim sources from the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th centuries will verify the fact that the opposite is true. That as I've just shown you, Christianity came into Nubia, Egypt, Ethiopia freely and was freely embraced. On the flip side, Islam comes into Africa with a sword attached to it. The Muslims came over after con the Rashidun Caliphate conquered Arabia. Then in 640, they came in and conquered Egypt and then uh, destroyed Carthage, a North African civilization that had been around for centuries. They conquered the Persian Empire, ended the Persian Empire, uh, conquered half the eastern half of the Roman Empire. The only place that the initial Islamic conquests were not successful in conquering was Nubia, which was a black Christian, the only black Christian nation, well, I shouldn't say only that in Ethiopia, but the oldest as well, uh, black nation in the world, which was also Christian, successfully fought the Muslims off. And actually, the, again, Muslim historians like Alumari, uh, Ibn Khaldun, Al-Makrizi, they all reference this warfare that happened between the Christian black Nubians and the invading Arab Muslims in the seventh century. And they credit the Nubians and, with their skill with the bow and arrow because Nubians had a reputation for being some of the most masterful uh, archers in going back to Egyptian times. And the Arab uh, armies gave them the nickname of pupil smiters. They would smite the pupils. And this comes from a story from Al-Baladuri, uh, who was a Muslim historian, who said, uh, I saw one of them, being a Nubian, saying to a Muslim, where would you like me to place my arrow in you? And when the Muslim replied, in certain, such a place, the Nubian would not miss. On one day, they came out against us and formed a line. We wanted to use swords, and we were not able to. And they shot us and put out our eyes to the number of 150. So again... The, the Nubian Christians uh, fought off the Muslims and they created a peace treaty with each other that was called the Bakht, which is just an Arabic version of saying the Pact or the Pacton from Greek. And this treaty is actually, I think by some records, the longest established and recognized treaty in human history. It lasted for a thousand, almost a thousand years, wherein the Muslims were, would retain control of Egypt, even though the majority of the population was Christian, and Nubia would remain autonomous and an independent Christian kingdom, and they, uh, and they had a, a, a treaty with each other to uh, let each other travel through one another's country, and had mostly a positive relationship for many centuries. But again, what's interesting is, and what can't be understated, is notice the fact that the first time that Islam comes into Africa, when it starts to exist, because don't forget, Christianity was around for hundreds of years before Islam even existed and was already prominent in Africa and was freely practiced there. Islam comes in by force and it's being brought in by Arabs from the Arabian Peninsula. And what they found when they came into Africa was a bunch of African Christians that they they took over and conquered in Egypt by the sword and conquered in, in Carthage and ended the centuries-long Christian tradition in North Africa and attempted to do so in, in, in Nubia, but that black African independent Christian nation was too powerful and pushed them off. So this completely reverses the narrative that Islam was the religion of black people and that Christianity came in by force. The opposite is actually true. So in the midst of this treaty, 
This also ushered in the Nubian golden era. This is this starts starting in the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. This was the golden era of Nubian history. Uh, this is when the, the, the various uh, nations in Nubia and then the United Dotawa nation produced the most amount of literature, arch architecture, archaeology, all kinds of different evidence that we can see from it. And again, if you go to some of the best uh, houses of Nubian history, uh, you know, the University of Warsaw in Poland or the National Museum in Khartoum of Sudan, and you go look at, Christ if you go look at Nubian evidence from this period, it's all going to be Christian. It's going to be like on this painting right here on the next slide. It's going to be Christian mosaics and paintings. It's going to be churches. It's gonna, if you go to the old capital of Dongola, which was the largest city in sub-Saharan Africa for centuries, you're going to mainly find the remains of churches. What I'm trying to say is that Christianity was at the heart of Nubian identity and therefore of African identity for many times, uh, for many centuries. And, and, and also uh, we see a, a strong value of Christianity and how it even affected the king, even all the way from the kings on down. A famous story uh, to show how Nubian kings even strongly valued the Christian lifestyle was a famous story that actually came from the 11th century. This was in the middle of the Nubian golden era uh, from a king named Solomon. Solomon was the king of Dotawo of Nubia in the 11th century. And he actually was credited with rejecting his office as king because he wanted to become a monk, that he felt that he could no longer be a good Christian and be a statesman. He says here, this is from an Egyptian monk named Abu al-Makarim, who gives a report of the churches and monasteries of Egypt, but also including much of Nubia. And he's talking about a certain church uh, named after Saint Onufrius. And and then he says here that the church is at a days of three distance uh, journey from the extremity of Nubia and at a distance of 10 days from Uswan. Uh, and Aswan was a city at the border of Egypt and Nubia. Uh, so then he continues, Solomon, king of Nubia, spent his time in worshiping God at this church of St. Onufrius. And after he had abdicated, that means got rid of his throne or gave up the throne, he said at the church of St. Onufrius, uh, at the border of Egypt and Nubia, he said, who is there among the kings that can be saved by God while he still governs among men? And that is not swayed by his passion and does not shed blood unjustly and does not force men to do that which is not right for them. And so King Solomon of Nubia willingly gave up the throne so he could go and live in the monastery. He ended up living the rest of his days there. Um, and this even impressed the Muslim ruler of Egypt, because remember, Muslims were in charge, but the Christians were still the majority of the population. And so this just shows you how thoroughly Christianity uh, and even the desire for the kingdom of God more than an earthly kingdom was at the center of of, of really, I think, some of the best examples um, of, of, you know, kind of uh, living out a kingdom theology uh, in this earth that we see in King Solomon. Um, that's a name that really should be more uh, taught and known. Another thing I want to point out on the next slide is the degree to which Christianity not only permeated all aspects of Nubian society in its golden era, but also spread into other areas. And this is an area actually of research that I'm working on right now. But on this slide here, you see there on the bottom right, that's a picture of the remains of Dongola that I mentioned. And those are pillars from churches. And like I said, if you go to ancient Dongola, all you're going to see is churches. That's the Nile River behind it. But at Dongola, there was a monastery that got started right around the time of the Christianization of Nubia in the 6th century. And in this monastery, there's wall paintings and all kinds of Nubian art and, uh, and architecture. But 
in that, there's actually one that's of great note, and that is a nativity painting on the bottom left. That's actually a faded, you know, it's, it's, it's old, it's a thousand years old, but it's a painting of Jesus, uh, baby Jesus and Mary. But to the left, um, if you're looking at it, or on, I guess on the right, on the wall, to Jesus and Mary is a collection of Africans who are worshiping and celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's on that top right picture where you can see various Africans who are shouting out praises in the Nubian language and also in some other language that the Nubian writer was not really sure of. And that is why, that's one of the reasons why this is so significant. Because if you notice also that many of the figures in this painting are wearing clothes and even wearing animal masks in a style that is not typical of Nubian, which strongly indicates that these figures in this painting were not Nubian, but they were Africans from further west in Central Africa. And we know that Nubia had great dealings with kingdoms to the west. In fact, one of the famous kingdoms is the kingdom of the Daju, which was an African kingdom in modern-day Chad and far western Sudan that Nubia had, had, had contact with. And in fact, there are even Muslim historians that claim that some of the regions of the Daju were Christian, uh, were Christian regions of that kingdom in modern Chad and even uh, parts of Niger. And we also know going forward that Christianity even made its way all the way to West Africa. Uh, and we know that even during the time, going forward in time, during the time of Mansa Musa in the 14th century, that Christianity had already made its way over there into West Africa, modern day uh, uh, Ghana and Ivory Coast and, and parts of Nigeria, way before, a over a century before slave ships even got there. And where did Central and West African Christianity come from? It came from Nubia, from other African Christians, and this is a, a visual representation of that. That at, this painting was drawn probably in the 12th or 13th century, and. Again, the unparalleled style of clothing and musical instruments and animal masks, which are much more characteristic of kind of Central, West, and South African cultures, is shown here. And, but notice, y'all, that these are people who are worshiping Jesus Christ with African animal masks on and with dashikis and loincloths and, and percussive drums. What this is showing is that the gospel had already reached Central and West Africa, and that as Africans in other parts of Africa were hearing about Jesus and believing on the Bisrat, they still worshiped Jesus according to their own unique African culture. They did not embrace a Western European version of Christianity, but they made it their own. So the gospel was going out in all directions in Nubia for centuries. Now, the unfortunate truth is that eventually Christianity did decline in Nubia, and by some accounts it became extinct. Um, and, and that primarily happened through just more and more immigration of Muslims moving in across the Red Sea and, and, and political infighting that started happening in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries. Um, and so by, the, about the, by about the 15th century, Nubia uh, was no longer a Christian nation, but it became a Muslim nation, uh, especially during the Fung Sultanate that really got started off in the 16th century. But um, there is, there is uh, evidence of Christianity still yet persisting in Nubia, even after it became a predominantly Muslim uh, nation. And actually that comes from uh, one example, there's a few examples, but one of the most famous examples is actually a letter that was written in the 1700s uh, from a missionary who visited Nubia and actually claims that there were still Christians there. Uh, that this is you know, now uh, almost 300 years after the, the so-called uh, extinction of Nubian Christianity. But notice what this uh, missionary says in his letter to a Spanish cardinal, he says, a few days ago I received from a servant a Berberine whom I have in my house such information that caused me great surprise. It is that in his, in, in his village called Tangos, which is an island of the Nile in the kingdom of Nubia, there are still some Christians 
although they have endured many troubles, disturbance and wars from the Turks to force them to embrace Mohammedanism. They, even at the cost of their lives, have always persevered as Christians and still hold in their hand a monastery, but without monks, in which there is a beautiful church decorated with wall and cloth paintings. And so again, this gives us a window into the likelihood of of the perseverance of the Bisrat among Nubian people. And even now, praise the Lord, there are many ethnic Nubians in North Sudan today that are coming to faith and who are putting their trust in Jesus Christ. And it's, it is encouraging to know that not only do they have a over thousand year history of Nubia actually being a Christian nation producing uh, theology and producing architecture uh, in uniquely African contexts, uh, that they can build upon even now as they walk with Jesus in the 21st century, but also that people of African descent all around the world can know and understand this history as being part of our history. Because again, uh, black people around the world, Nubia is our homeland. Nubia is the origin of most black people. Again, it's the oldest black nation, more than Ethiopia by thousands of years. Um, and, and most African nations that developed later, Songhai, Mali, uh, Ghana, uh, Congo, uh, Makumbungwe, all of these other African nations developed primarily through trade and migration as the centuries went on from the East uh, kind of African Sudanese region from Nubia. And so this is in many ways our history um, as, as many of us on the continent and then of course later in the diaspora are rooted in the Nubian context. We are rooted in a nation that freely embraced the bisrot of Jesus Christ and was a Christian nation for over a thousand years. And so this really brings home to me the prophecy that we see in scripture uh, and the description of Cush in its role in the covenant people of God of every nation, tribe, and tongue, where in Psalm 68 it says that Cush will stretch out her hands to God. That there, Cush shows up in many passages as, as an integral part. Isaiah 18, again, talking about uh, the, the, the people of Cush, of the land of warring winds, and the, 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 the people of smooth skin and, and powerful speech, people who are revered far and wide, will bring gifts to the Lord at Zion. And then also, again, for, for her descendants, which are black people, Zephaniah 3 and 10 says that from beyond the rivers of Cush, from even further beyond Cush, God says, my worshipers, he says, my scattered ones. And having black people been scattered uh, through sin and through injustice, but God in his providence has been gathering us all to himself as part of the multicultural, multiracial people of God uh, and uh, using us to speak against injustice and represent the kingdom of God. And again, that is uh, just, I think, a way of reconnecting back with the the prophecy we see in uh, Zephaniah 3 and 10 that talk about the uh, the descendants, that the, that the worshipers of God from beyond the rivers of Cush will be brought back to Zion to bring gifts to God. And that's exactly uh, a part of what we're doing now by reconnecting with our ancestry as one of many examples of the goodness and faithfulness of God to all of his people uh, and with a special focus as we do here on the on God's role and his activity among black people who have been an integral part of the church of Jesus Christ from day one and we see that Nubia is a major just one but also a major part of that story and so 
thank you very much. I look forward to engaging with anybody uh, further um, about this history. There's some great resources out there and also at the Jude 3 Project as well as in the Meacham School of Hymenote, we offer courses on this. And so if anybody's interested in going deeper, we would love to do that with you. But for now, we're gonna wrap up this, um, this summary of early Nubian Christianity. And we look forward to seeing you again on another episode of the Bisrot Podcast. So thank you very much. And I'll say uh, the Nubian word for God that they used uh, was actually the word Tilla. And that was actually an ancient Nubian word uh, that was used in religion. Uh, in, in relig there was a goddess named Tilla and they used that. Just like the word God actually comes from a Norse or Anglo-Saxon word. Uh, so they used that when they translate the Bible, Theos or Elohim, they would translate it as Tilla. So this, was, this is the oldest black Christian way to refer to God. And so I'll end it by saying, Tilla bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the BizRot Podcast with Dr. Vince Bontu, sponsored by the Jew 3 Project. Remember to rate and subscribe wherever you stream your favorite podcast. And remember, if you want to help support the mission and vision of the Jew 3 Project to help black Christians know what they believe and why through this podcast or other avenues, you could do so by going to Jew3Project.org and hitting that donate tab to give by mail or to give online. Every gift helps equipped, and we're so thankful for your support and your prayers. We appreciate you, and until next time, grace and peace, and God bless.